Welcome to another edition of Cybersecurity Dispatch. This is your host, Andy Anderson. In this episode, The Making of a Cyber Hero, we interview Gary Berman, CEO of Cyberman Security. He tells his unbelievable story of how company insiders use cyber attacks over more than a decade to destroy the company he built, and how that experience led him to create the cybersecurity-themed comic series, The Cyber Hero Adventures, as a way to help prevent this from happening to anyone else. It's an amazing story, and one I think you'll love hearing. I know I did. Well, Gary, just to start, why don't you just introduce yourself, your name, your company, those sorts of things. Thanks, Andy. I'm uh, Gary Berman, the uh, CEO of Cyberman Security, and I'm uh, probably one of the most uh, reluctant people to be having this conversation uh, with you because up until um, a couple of years ago, uh, I didn't know very much about technology and even less about cybersecurity, but everything about it, what it means to be a victim of a series of insider cyber attacks for an incredible period of of 15 years. Yeah, we had a conversation before we were on the air um, when I met you, and I think the story of kind of how you got pulled in is is a great one, which is why I was so excited to have you on. But I think that's unfortunately the case with too many people, right? Like the amount of sort of damage that's going on, people never sort of imagined that they would get pulled into thinking about these issues and are, whether that's election officials or just individuals with credit cards, et cetera. But we're excited. So just to to dive right in, I want to kind of hear the story. How did you get pulled into this? I was very fortunate almost 25 years ago to have started a marketing communications company with my lovely and uh, my lovely bride, who's the more intelligent one, but that's probably for another (laughs) podcast. And we're doing great. We we had the company for about uh, 10 years. We were very fortunate to then be able to sell 49% of the company to one of the largest smart communications companies in the world called the WPP Group based out of uh, London. And things were just going incredibly well after, after the sale went through. We started from a small base. So we had several million dollars in, in billings and uh, up to about, a, about 100 employees. So we were a small business. But we were very fortunate to be on the cutting edge of this uh, macro trend of, towards uh, market segmentation. And, and uh, we were particularly well-known for our work um, in demographic areas. And so we looked at different segments of the population, such as looking at the differences between men and women and young and old and people of different uh, races and ethnicities and the LGBTQ community and veterans. And so we developed, you know, a successful business looking at subsets of the total market for various companies like AT&T, Coca-Cola, Procter & Gamble, and many others. So things were going, uh, you know, swimmingly. And unfortunately, I had a a serious injury. Uh, I was uh, playing basketball in a a Jewish league, which is... uh, somewhat of an oxymoron, but that's for a different podcast too. (laughs) But I blew out my knee, you know, no big deal. But then one thing led to another and I almost uh, died because of uh, a series of blood clots. Uh, During that time, I was out of my company for about six months or so. And I noticed that sales were starting to decline, but I attributed to the fact that I was really the primary rainmaker, you know, of the company. And it didn't really bother me, you know, too much. 
And uh, one day, of all places, I'll give you a little more detail than you probably want, but I happened to be, you know, in the bathroom and my phone rang, which at that time, this is now 15 years ago, I had one of those, you know, big phones, you know, that looked like a military walkie-talkies and, yeah, and, the brick. Um, the brick. And, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And it didn't ring very much. You know, I didn't use it, you know, very often. I just had it for important uh, contacts. And the phone rang, and I noticed that it was the CEO of, of uh, one of the companies that we had just merged with. And and uh, she starts off the phone screaming at me, the call, what the blank is going on at your company? And I was, it just took my breath away. I said, what are you talking about? She replied, well, I just got a call from one of your people saying that there was widespread fraud within your operation in your data collection facility and that you were under investigation by the FBI and that I should not communicate with you any further. It took my breath away. I said, what are you talking about? Now, I, up until that point, I was very well known nationally. You know, I hosted national conferences, think tanks, bringing in these big thought leaders, including CEOs of big companies. And to hear something like that was just uh, overwhelming. So I said, I asked, you know, who, who calls you? And she said, well, I'm not going to disclose that. And I said, okay, uh, let me just uh, get back to you by close of business. So I proceeded to, you know, gather, you know, some key executives, some of which had been me for a long time, you know, about this matter. And so they, you know, acted like, oh, well, let's look into it. And so we validated all of our research that we had going for some of our large clients. I, without even asking, I refunded hundreds of thousands of dollars to these big clients because even the hint of, you know, any type of issue would be very uh, damaging. Plus, just from an ethical standpoint, I, you know, I wanted to take care of our clients. So I refunded a lot of money, even though I, I was not asked to. And uh, we redid the projects and authenticated everything to be completely legitimate. So uh, this happened over a period of you know, several weeks. Then uh, I got a call from a second client. And it was the exact same discussion. And then a third, and then a fourth, and then a fifth. So like layers of an onion, we started to realize that there was something really wrong going on here. And uh, the last thing I did was expect people that I trusted, you know, my right-hand people. And some months go by, uh, the business now takes a precipitous decline because so was, wait, wait, but but before yeah. we move on, so okay, so yeah. these clients are calling and they're getting these they're getting these calls from someone or yes. was the FBI and but that calls from out of the blue and it's not there is there's no basis for the allegation or there is fraud no, going on. None whatsoever. One hundred percent validated all of our work. So there was no investigation. It was just someone essentially spreading a rumor. It was some of my key executives. Yes. Working at your company, we're calling and telling them that there's fraud going on. Wow. So an insider, an insider was none of the, none of the, oh, wow, two of them. And so, and none of the clients would let you, I mean, it sounds like the first wouldn't tell you, but would any of the subsequent sort of reveal the source or? No, because they were, I later learned 
gotcha. were told not not to. So I'm, okay. I'm giving you just just like sort of the first part of of, of, yeah. of what has happened. Sorry. No, it's okay. Keep no, going. I appreciate I appreciate your interest. It's you know, look, I am the first to tell you this is not a believable story, yeah. except it's true. And so I was as skeptical as anyone. So, anyways, time goes by. Well, I later learned what one of our clients sent me a presentation of the uh, of capabilities and she said hey gary isn't this from your company and i went yes so to make a very complicated story shorter they had actually opened up their own company by cloning us using all of our intellectual property all of our computer systems they spoofed the website to look like ours so that when people thought they were coming to my company, they were redirected to their company. When anybody tried to make a phone call into my, my corporate office, the phones were redirected to their phone numbers and 19 attack vectors. Now, I sound like I know what I'm talking about now, but at the time, you have to keep in mind, this is 15 years ago and hacking was not part of the zeitgeist of, you know, the, of, of yeah. the world. You know, there was hardly a Facebook and things like that. So I had no idea what was going on anyways. And one of the guys that was uh, a collaborator in, in what the FBI referred to as espionage uh, was a really, really competent programmer. Even 15 years ago, I, you know, upon reflection, he, he said with some pride that he was one of the guys that helped develop the system architecture to stream pornography. And, you know, this guy was, you know, a very advanced, uh, you know, technologist even 15 years ago, specifically within the Mac operating system because he was an expert at Unix, which of course lies below the Mac OS. So one day, as I noticed that everyone seemed really interested in, in this meeting in a parking lot, I learned, because I just got there very early, that almost every morning they were having the equivalent of their production meeting inside our parking lot before they came in my office to go over all the projects that they were working on under my name without me knowing it. So after after that happened, one day, you know, I started seeing little things that I, I could tell were anomalies. So one day I walked into one of my executive's offices and he happened to be downloading some files from our from our central processing unit uh, into an external hard drive. And uh, I said, what are you doing? And he, he got all nervous and I looked at his computer and I saw he's downloading, you know, client information. So I I dislodged, I disconnected the hard drive and I said, you need to leave. And I'll never forget. And boy, was this, you know, foretelling. He pointed his finger right in my face and he said, you have no idea what hacking is. And he left again, like layers of an onion. He started to uncover some things. I hired a forensic firm, was able to document, you know, some things that they'd done with some logs. They had deleted most of the logs, but we found one. And uh, we took that evidence to an attorney. We had a meeting with a couple of the culprits and their attorney. And my wife and I, for personal reasons, the most important one being that we had a daughter with some special needs, we decided that just to let it go, we, you know, we did not want to put kind of the bad karma, you know, in the world. And they agreed to a cease and desist of these behaviors. That was my giant multi-million dollar mistake. So, Things basically decided not to criminally prosecute or or even civilly civilly continue any action. You just were like, hey, if they if they stop, we'll be, you know, that's what the outcome that you wanted. 
it was incredibly naive upon reflection. And, but I thought I could rebuild, you know, and I said, fine, you know, things happen. Companies have problems all the time. And I had, you know, a lot of gas in my tank, you know, I was still, you know, maybe 40 something years old, you know, and, uh, I, my reputation I thought was intact, you know, but for these calls, which I, I continue to hear about. Anyways, we, um, kept the business going for, you know, several years and I basically depleted all of our personal savings to keep our employees on payroll, including some of the culprits. At the time, I didn't know. How many total culprits were there at the end? There were five people. We kept the business going, you know, as long as I could. Eventually, we had to close. And I said, okay, then that chapter is over. And I then uh, did the pivot. My wife and me at first, I, I got into veterans' causes, working on something called the Anthem Project, which is designed to help warriors coming back from theater to help them reintegrate back into civil society. And then after that, several years, we, my wife and I started a children's education company to tutor kids. And then about two years ago, and here's where the story gets incredibly interesting, we decided that I would test the waters to see if I could go back into the marketing communications industry that I had left 10 years prior. I made a few phone calls. And I was very fortunate that I was actually invited to be the master of ceremonies of a, of a big industry conference. So there I was shortly thereafter giving, you know, a keynote address and, and uh, doing something similar to what I'd done all those year, er, years earlier. And it went great. People, all these big clients and companies that knew me from before, many of them came up, oh, where have you been? You know, it's been like 10 years and what are you doing these days? And you know, it was an incredibly uplifting experience because in addition to the welcome, I got a bunch of leads. You know, people came up to me and said, hey, Gary, would you submit a proposal for, for this project and that? So that night that I was the master of ceremonies at this industry conference, after 10 years of not having any interactions with them whatsoever, two of them checked my LinkedIn profile the same night. And then the next day, the hack started happening. Boom, 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 boom. All these different things started happening literally from one day to the next. You know, I had emails being deleted, accounts were being spoofed, uh, my passwords were being changed. They spoofed a, a Google two factor authentication. There were 19 vectors, as I mentioned previously. And I went, holy cow, you know, this is, this is nuts. This can't be happening. And, uh, after 10 years, I mean, who would possibly keep that up? Or even if I knew who it was, you know, why? At first, I could understand it was an economic motivation. They started their own company and they went about it in a nefarious way. But I understood that. But then it became something else after 10 years, my goodness. And uh, so I started gathering evidence uh, using my iPhone and other devices to take pictures and videos of different anomalous things. And when I first started into it, I would self-assess that I had maybe 25% correct. And what I thought about 75% would have been false positives and just mistakes because I didn't know what I was doing. But it was enough that I brought it to the FBI and they took a look at it. And it was enough that they came to my house the next day and so I had these two FBI agents looking over my shoulders as I was showing them some stuff on a laptop. 
and this giant cursor, like a 144 font giant cursor came up and started moving around, closing and deleting files. Did you see that? Did you see that? And they said, yeah, yeah, we saw it. So that was sufficient for them to forward with my amateur information to the, the, uh, the attorney's office and they declined to open up a case because of the amount of time that went by. Even though these were new hacks, it was a relatively small crime, a few million dollars over time. And after going through, you know, all the emotions that anyone would, I, I mean, I was incredibly uh, disillusioned and upset and angry. And, you know, I finally just got to this point where I said, okay, I have to make a pivot. You know, I don't want to live my life as a victim. There are many victims, all kinds of crimes. And I said, okay, I'm going to learn everything I can about hacking and cybersecurity. So just about every day, starting at four in the morning, that's all I did. 10 to 12 hours every day, listening to podcasts like yours, reading everything I could, going to conferences just to see if there's anything I could glean from it. And lo and behold, you know, I, I started to pick up a few things to start looking for. And so my, you know, I was definitely hyper aware, but that's different than kind of crossing this line into paranoia, you know, because paranoia is an unfounded concern. At least there was a basis for what I was looking at, even though maybe I didn't get it all correct. I mean, I know I didn't, but I got a lot of it correct. Anyways, so I started getting more evidence and I brought it back to the FBI and still was not sufficient to um, open a federal case. So I went to local law enforcement. There are many stories, you know, about that. The big aha moment came when, as part of my learning, I got a book called Cybersecurity for Dummies, you know, and uh, put out by Palo Alto Networks. And I said, okay, perfect. Cybersecurity for Dummies, it's great for me. And so I started reading it and 10 pages in, you know, I'm telling you, I was lost. 10 pages in, I was lost. So I asked my wife to read it. You know, so, so what do you get from this? And he said, I don't know. So coincidentally, I happened to speak to the CTO of Palo Alto Networks and he laughed. He said, well, it's really not for beginners. I said, then why do you call it cybersecurity for dummies? What am I missing here? And so coincidentally, I happened to see Spider-Man and it just hit me, superheroes as a way to distill complex cybersecurity information. Because I figure if a guy like me is lost, how is a mom who wants to protect her daughter from a webcam or a baby monitor or, you know, uh, a connected car or a smartphone going to protect themselves? And I just figured there had to be a better way. And Cyber Heroes was born. Yeah. So, um, well, I, I want to get back to the story, but just to finish this part, um, I met you at, at Hack NYC, where it was the first time that you had released a version of your comic book, which is great. Yeah. So tell people a little bit about that, and then I, I want to—I have a couple more questions about this, you know, the history too. So sure, I was very fortunate at one of the cybersecurity conferences that I went to just to listen and learn. One of the uh, panelists was incredibly impactful the way he spoke. His name is uh, Tom Brennan from a proactive risk. And after he spoke, I kind of almost ran after him because he was leaving the conference. I saw him in the hallway and, you know, I said, Mr. Brennan, you know, thank you so much for 
your wonderful remarks. And I was just wondering if I could run some, a couple of things by you real quickly. So I put uh, some photographic evidence into a little binder and some early prototypes of the superhero comic and things like that. And I asked him if he'd be kind of just to take a look at it and um, just see what he thought. And he did. We ended up having this incredibly uh, great conversation. The seed was planted to collaborate with uh, the great folks at Hack NYC about uh, launching the comic uh, in New York. And this was just last week. And, and I was incredibly humbled and honored by the response from everybody. I even, for the first time ever, I, I think I blushed when some people wanted to get an autographed copy. <laughs> I just started blushing, you know, like, what? You want an autograph? So, and the feedback we've gotten since then has been incredible, including some big potential joint venture partners like Microsoft. Yeah. And so the plan is to kind of come out with different issues to sort of tell the story of cybersecurity with some support from corporates or... Right. Well, after doing a lot of listening and learning, you know, about this, uh, I had to, you know, we had to figure out, you know, a way to, uh, is this viable, you know, business? I was very fortunate that in my past career in the marketing world, I created a series of syndicated research reports on various sectors of the economy. So it might be like automotive or banking and finance or healthcare or telecommunications. And my business model at that time was that I would have the leaders in each of those categories co-fund the content. And they would get, you know, not advertisements, but I'll just make this up. AT&T is proud to be a, a proud sponsor of, of this work like that. Gotcha. And so I did that very well. And I gave them access to other relational databases so that it was a, a, a good value, you know, for what they paid. And uh, that worked well. So that's what I'm doing. And so this very first issue is really essentially an overview of the series. We're going to be uh, having uh, four big issues. This is about 50 pages. So uh, actually, it's much more akin to a graphic novel, you know, than a comic. Yeah. Uh, and and the content uh, depicts real cybersecurity experts in it. We drew them in and best in best practice advice from cybersecurity people. So even though the modality is a comic, the content is substantive, you know. And so what we're doing with this first issue is we introduce what we did was introduce uh, hacks. It kind of anthropomorphized them, giving hacks characteristics that would allow a reader to sort of get what a hack is because, you know, as you well know, I mean, you can't see hacks. You can see their effect. can't see them usually unless you're a cybersecurity expert. So a regular person just can't get their head around it, including me. So we created all these different characters like WannaCry and uh, um, <laughs> Virus Man and, and the Bugger and the Fisher and we took, you know, we drew in actual visual representations of what these hacks actually do in the wild. And, and uh, so this first issue, we're actually giving away at no cost. Uh, we sent it out to 17,000 cybersecurity people uh, yeah, uh, two days ago, seven, 800 of them have read it already. And uh, I have, uh, here's an interesting little tidbit, but as part of my listening and learning starting in November, I went to LinkedIn, which I, I didn't really have much occasion to use, and I typed in the word, you know, CSO. And so, of course, I got all these CSOs, and 
one at a time. I just invited them, you know, to connect with me on LinkedIn. And, and it's not like these guys need Gary Berman, you know, it's a connection. So I didn't know what to expect. And on my LinkedIn page, all it had was a cover of the, of the original version of the comic. And I asked people to please send me blinded cybersecurity stories, answering the question, you know, what happened? Uh, what were the consequences? And most importantly, what were the lessons learned? so that I can include that content inside the comic. We did that, we included a story from that. I ran out of CSOs, so I typed in CISO and I ran out of those. And as of this morning, I have 21,000 followers on LinkedIn. How many did you have when you started? Not even a year, I started in November till this morning. And by the way, I stopped the invitations in February because it was like too many. I, I, and People just started every, to find you. Yeah, every day, I mean, I don't know. 20 to 50 people request connections. And we have no, I've done no marketing, no social media, nothing yet. Wow, just asking for like good content. Well, yeah. I mean, I think one, I think you've, the number of, of, I mean, even individuals who are experts in the space, right? Because this space is just so, it, there's so much here, right? You need to be an expert in everything. And so people mm -hmm. are sort of constantly learning and to, to have kind of more fun ways simple ways, understandable ways to talk about it, I think is hugely valuable. Um, but also, I, I don't know, I think you nailed it. This audience loves comics, right? I mean, whether that's the t-shirts you wear, or the things that you kind of talk about, I, I, I think, I mean, brilliant, brilliant from a marketing perspective. Let's go, I want to just go back a little bit because I, I think the audience would love to hear a little bit more about the story. I mean, did you, did you know, did, did you ever kind of understand the, mo I mean, do you know who was doing it? I mean, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, do, do you have any sense of their motivation for it? Yes. At first, there's two parts to that question. Part one, when they were working for me and then after, it was an economic crime. It was just money. Yeah. Because they started their own company doing the exact same thing that I did while they were working for me, being paid by my company full time. So that is an easy answer. It was just money and, and you could argue greed, things like that. That they came back 10 years later, I don't have an answer. And were they successful? I mean, has that company gone on to be successful yeah. in what it was doing? Yes, they have. You know, but, but interestingly, and I have to be a little cautious here just because this is an ongoing matter. So what I, what I can, something interesting about that at the conference, at the Hack NYC conference, you know, I was talking to someone in cybersecurity and while I was just sitting there, he did some things. And, you know, before I knew it, you know, he had their website up, which I had not seen for 10 years. I mean, I had no reason to look at them. Mm -hmm. And he went to their, you know, to their website and then went to click on the staff page. And it, the, only the staff page had been deleted. And so he asked me, why isn't there a staff page? I said, I don't, I don't know. And so he did some other things and we, you got the archived page back. Right. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, it looks familiar to me. But that's about, you know, this is an ongoing matter right now. I, I need to be respectful of uh, laws yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. I, I don't want to. Yeah, of course. How about, I mean, the other thing, in, and this is, I don't know if we, if we can't talk about it at all. Like, I think for it's someone okay. who hasn't thought about legal, legal issues, like the, the ability oh. for any sort of protection in the online world, right? I mean, it's sort of, I mean, I, I've encountered weirdly met friends who've also been victims of not online fraud, but just traditional fraud. And the ability yeah. to actually per persecute it is 
it's incredibly difficult, right? It's like sad in terms of like people can steal hundreds of thousands of dollars and millions and nothing. You can't do anything. So just for those who don't know, like it, what are the, what are the ram the, the ability to sort of for law enforcement to help you, right? Yeah, it's a great question. And, and you don't have to speak specifically about this. Matter, no, no, no. Maybe I, just I, in general, because I think people are. Yeah, yeah. Interested. I, I learned, I learned a lot about this. You know, so I appreciate your question, and it is true. Okay, so the first thing I would say about it is, you know, why don't victims speak up? And then I'll I'll just sort of go into your question about law enforcement. So victims in cybersecurity don't speak up for a number of reasons. One is reputational risk, and who is going to want to work with a company that they know has been compromised? Yeah. In my case, for example, you know, there was a there was a presentation, you know, a proposal that I wrote to a company and it was for a lot of money. And, you know, the last slide, as has been my custom, would say something like, thank you, and have contact information. And it was changed to swear words. So that's not a way to try to close a deal, if you can imagine. Yeah. So, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to modify something. Some of the motivation of part two of this has to be like just the thrill manipulation and social engineering and to just screw with people. People do do that, I've learned, you know. But anyways, going back to law enforcement, so reputational risk, loss of employees' confidence, loss of prospective clients coming, you know, coming to your, uh, you know, to your business. Ignorance, in my case. I just didn't know what was happening and I should have. And then over the years, embarrassment and shame, you know? Yeah. I mean, I just didn't want to speak up. And nobody believed me anyways, right? The people that I spoke to said, yeah, sure, you know, you're being hacked. And I had people that I even wanted to show some of the evidence in the form of photographs that just didn't want to hear about it or see it. So that's why victims don't speak up. I decided to speak up for the reasons that I'm saying, which is to try to turn it into something good for other people. As it relates yeah. to law enforcement, I went to the FBI over a two and a half year period, 10 times, and they knew me. <laughs> and I had to be very, you know, cognizant. I didn't want to seem like I was being ridiculous, but each time I had, you know, some significant developments from technology and things like that, that I could show, I wanted someone to at least, you know, look at it. The FBI works on large cases, and the way they define that, it's not just the FBI. I think the FBI did a good job for me. The, the ball was dropped, uh, or again, I just didn't have enough evidence for the U.S. attorneys to open the case. So it's very important that your listeners understand. I think the FBI did a really good job for me, considering how little they had to go on and that we were so small. The U.S. Attorney's Office, because of their workload and things like that, just declined to open the case. I went to my local law enforcement, I don't know, over a two-year period, also at least maybe five times, five or seven times. They don't have cybersecurity capabilities. You know, I mean, it's, it's a very unique set of skills. The resources are incredibly stretched. And, you know, each of the law enforcement people that I interacted with were very empathetic. I thought they were really great, but their hands yeah. were tied, you know? And so I just took that, that was like on me because I didn't have sufficient attribution to open up a case. 
and you know one only need to look at what's going on with all the hacks you know and how difficult it is to attribute correctly someone's IP address or other you know signatures and things like that if someone is sophisticated and don't want to be found so in the realm of cybersecurity especially you know small to medium businesses who can't afford you know the latest in software and and, and hardware technology solutions or they can't afford their own you know chief security officer and things like that incredibly vulnerable and how about, I mean, so understandable on the like sort of criminal side, what about on the sort of civil side, right? I mean, because sort of opportunities to sort of to sue for damages or whatnot. Well, there are two things. This is, you know, it's active right now. So uh, yeah, I'll, okay, okay. Leave, more, I'll leave it more, at that part. But yeah. damages, I mean, well, it's an interesting question because as I'm just thinking out loud here, what I'm seeking is is justice. And if I'm not able to get justice in my case, in the form of some verdict or compensatory or punitive damages, I still have a plan B, which is notion of this larger justice in the world, that by putting something out there, if it ends up being a successful business, that's just you know icing on the cake uh, for yeah. me. At this time in my life, I'm focused you know on the advocacy part rather than the victim part. Having said that, I'll just you know leave it that this is still an open matter. Yeah, and I guess what I would, and this is for our listeners, and I rarely sort of comment, but I think one of the things I, I actually heard a former, he was former head of NATO, actually, and he was talking about sort of issues at the geopolitical level, right? Mm-hmm. How do you think about, one, I think of the, of the biggest challenges is that these, the actors, and I'm talking about at the nation state level, Right. Like it's great if we like put an indictment against some citizen in a different country. Right. But if they live in that other country, like they're never coming here. Right. They're never going to like travel to. I mean, sometimes, you know, they sort of mess up and they travel to sort of a a neutral country where we have subpoena powers or uh, cross dictional like we can arrest them and then they can be. uh, I forget the word for that. They can be uh, extradited. uh, Yeah. Extradited. Um, Yeah. But also the other thing that was really interesting is like, you know, for the black market to exist, you know, it's not, it has to interact with the white market as well. And there's a huge amount of gray space. And so, you know, what you try and do is, is make it much more difficult for the black market to, to get get the job done. And I think what you're talking about in terms of, of talking about it, but I think the reputational pieces the assuring that individuals can never like because my my hope is that that the that you slowly reduce the ability for individuals to work in uh in the white market uh if they truly are up to nefarious things even if you can't prove it in a criminal level at least at a civil level and the court of like public opinion and and reputation because I mean they I think it's there's hopefully opportunities to do that I mean, I think our, our country relies on the rule of law. That's what ultimately what I think the our, our society, why we've been so successful. And so my hope is that that gets resolved in some way. Thank you. I, uh, that's a really good thought. And I, I adhere you know, to what you're saying. But, you know, it's an interesting thing. I, I'm reasonably sure they've seen this comic in electronic form already. And they know they're depicted and they know it's them. Even though I didn't make it look like them, and of course, you know, I blinded everything. 
but they know what they did. There's karma, karma yeah. coming. Yeah, yeah. And that, well, I mean, just this great opportunity to talk with you in a small way, uh, hopefully enlighten, you know, listeners. And, you know, I'm on a speaker circuit now and, and some companies are having me come in to, to teach them about some of the things that we've been through. So, uh, I mean, to me, that's the right way to do this at this stage of my life, to turn it into something that helps other people. And, and one of the yeah. things that I included in the inside cover of the comic was the dedication, a big thank you. Uh, in addition to speaking to my family and stuff like that, I, I'll paraphrase by saying, you know, that the only time that people hear about hacks is when the hackers are successful. You never hear about all of the countless people who toil in anonymity, uh, keeping us safe at home and at school and at work. You know, all the uns- so I wrote, this is, this is dedicated to the unsung heroes in cybersecurity and law enforcement who keep us safe. I didn't just write that. I, I have a lot of experience listening and learning to some incredibly generous people. And so it's important, I think, you know, kind of a takeaway from this is, you know, this is a cautionary tale to be sure, but there's way more good in the world than there is bad. Yeah, I think evidenced by your 20,000 LinkedIn followers, for one, for sure. Um, But I think also, I mean, I think part of the reason we started this this podcast was because so often a lot of the media uh, attention is about kind of about the hack and, you know, this company. And it's sort of like there is a sort of shaming of those individuals and those companies. And look at how dumb they were to let this thing happen. Right. But I think quietly behind closed doors, you know, as you talk with more and more people in cybersecurity, it's like, no, it's just when is my number up in terms of getting hacked and whether that's and I think that's almost every major organization out there. Right. And so my hope is that it does that the stigma around it does start to fall and that people aren't like this isn't this isn't something that you did personally. It's just sort of the, the nature of the of the business and that talking about it and and not focusing on just who got hacked today begins to change that culture because it does one in terms of exposing individuals and issues out there. Let me just say something about that because you bring up a really important point. One of my just sort of takeaways, and I'm going to ask you if you think that it's valid or not. Comparatively speaking, you know, black hat hackers share information freely and fast. White hackers are a little bit less so. And in part, not just hackers, but companies are, are reluctant to do so for a number of reasons besides the reputational stuff, but it's also their intellectual property, right? Mm-hmm. So the hackers are like horizontally structured. And my sense is that, you know, people in cybersecurity are vertically structured. And I think it has to be a horizontal sort of sharing. And I know there are a lot of initiatives like Hack NYC that are designed for the free flow exchange of information. And they're all, you know, these databases with different threats, uh, you know, that are listed and things like that. I mean, that to me, you know, it's like a rising tide lists all ships, you know, and the more that to do what you're saying, the more, the more victim, I don't even want to use that word victim. I mean, the more that people speak up and share their lessons learned, the better it's going to be for everyone. The other thing about that that to me was incredibly interesting is that of the top 500 cybersecurity firms, according to Cybersecurity Ventures, I, I think is the name, only um, 
at least through a search of that database, 16 companies say they do, you know, education and training. So that means 83% of the top 500 companies offer software or hardware solutions when 62% of the hacks are seemingly caused by, by simple human error. And to me, just as a marketing person, that represents a, a gap, you know, that, that companies uh, understandably and rightly are spending, you know, a lot of money on software and technology solutions. Maybe not, I don't know if it's money or, or the way they go about it, uh, but education and training needs to be, you know, right on par with it from my perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I've had the debate a lot with people because I feel like, I think education certainly has a role, but it's also not a panacea, right? Like yeah. I think partly where I see, I think a lot, a lot needs, to, I, I mean, I think it's education or a change of thinking at, at every level because, I, and one of the biggest is just to expect people to continue to make mistakes, right? It, it, yeah. It's like yeah. fundamental design of our systems. Um, yeah. And I've heard, I've had lots of conversations about this. I mean, we don't expect people when they're driving to never get in an accident. Exactly. Right? We know that people get in lots of accidents. Just the way in driving, safe driving has a role. Also, the design of the systems are such that we expect people to make mistakes. And we don't, and it's just how do we minimize the damage that they that they do when they make mistakes, right? I think that, that's an yeah. equal that's an equal sort of value of education. And, you know, there's some really good, there's some good sort of thinking about, about system design, about how do you change your strategy to expect, to expect penetrations, to expect kind of breakdown, to expect systems to go offline and think past those. And that's more of like a fundamental shift, I think, in, uh, in outlook, like a paradigm shift, if you want to get like nerdy in terms of terminology. Um, yeah, I mean, that, um, that makes a lot of sense to me, you know, and I, I just, I really just think that the people in cybersecurity need to be honored for what they do and, and law enforcement yeah. too. Yeah. Just before we close, I think one of the things um, that I would be really interested in, just because you're sort of living it, is do you have any sort of recommendations or places you would point to for people like yourself, I mean, you're an individual, you're not a company, right? Or, right. You, or you're concerned about being attacked potentially by some pretty, uh, pretty amoral um, individuals um, who seem to be also skilled. How do you, what would you recommend people do to try and protect themselves? Is there some place that you look, which is giving really good guidance, et cetera? Yeah. One of the guys, uh, one of the first guys that I met in this ecosystem is named Richard Geary. He has an organization called IROC2, I-R-O-C with the number two, dot O-R-G. And what, what he's dedicated his life to is to teaching children about uh, overall safety, of which cybersecurity is a component part. And every year, he does over 200 speeches to schools and communities all over the country. And he in, uh, came up with this uh, concept uh, that I really think makes tremendous sense, and it's called public and permanent. And the idea, as the name implies, is that once you put something on the internet, it's public and it is permanent. And so the first line of defense, is don't put anything online that you think could ever be used to compromise you. 
whether it be as a business person or as an individual, you know, and, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, Andy, a paradigm shift. Well, there's been a big one. Of course, it customarily was, you know, everything was private unless you wanted to make it public. Now everything's public unless you want to make it private. And even doing so, you're not really doing that as per the testimony from Facebook. You have the big thing happening in about a week or two weeks, uh, general data protection regulations, GDPR. Which uh, is is in, uh, for the listeners who may not know is a, an initiative uh, originating out of uh, Europe that basically uh, guarantees rights for personally identifiable information and most importantly severe economic consequences if those rights are violated and it's not just Europe but it's any European person and it's any company that does business with Europe so this is happening on May 25th. And I think that should be a pretty big deal. So from a, you know, sort of a resource standpoint, where if, if I were a mom interested in protecting my daughter from prying webcam, public and permanent, you know, IROC2.org is a great resource for children relate, related things. In terms of, you know, businesses, uh, small business or even, even uh, enterprises, you know, there are in- incredible online resources, both for victims, but also for advocacy. And the one that that I think is, you know, extremely well done is put forth by the National Institute of Science and Technology. They have a subgroup that's referred to as uh, NICE, and it's the National Institute for Cybersecurity Education. And I think uh, they're doing a really great job on providing resources that are easy to implement and follow a uh, what they call the cybersecurity framework, which is a way for the community, the country, the world even, to get organized around uh, being safe online. So you can go to uh, nice.org, I, I believe it is. Yeah, we'll put all the links to stuff in the, in the notes for yeah. this, so that's great. Gary, this is terrific. Anything else before we close? I mean, this is just really, you know, one of my, so different than a lot of our interviews, although we, we interviewed some of the people from NISC, but that's the other direction we go. But this is just such a fun, great story. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for your interest. We're going to be selling these comics. If someone wants to get a copy there right now, we're charging $10 and it's got about, I don't know, $500 of of training information in it, I guess, and hard to quantify. But if you wanted to get a copy of the comic, you can go to cyberheroescomics.com. Those are plural, uh, heroescomics.com. And if you want to, you know, look me up on LinkedIn. uh, And if you have stories, you know, true life blinded cybercrime stories, love to run it by our team you know, for future issues. And we're going to be doing animations too. So it's not just physical comics. These will be uh, cartoons. We'll be doing different languages and things like that. But but other than that, nothing going on. (laughs) No, it sounds like not that busy. (laughs) Gary, this is terrific. Really incredibly, incredibly great story. Really enjoyed it. I mean, I wish you all the success. And um, thank you. We'll definitely stay in touch. I love it. Good stuff. And send along anything you've got uh, that you want to include with the notes. Yep. Thanks. And this is a little thing that I'm just starting to do, but thanks for being a cyber hero. 